hey, if you're listening to this, you're about to listen to uh, a lecture from my class, biology slash psychology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term here at Algoma University. I'll be your host, Dave Broadbeck. I hope you get something out of it, but as I've said many times before, the real hope here is that my students get something out of it. If you do, well, that's also good. Oh, if you are one of my students, that definitely, you know, I'm starting to ramble. Without further ado, here's some intro music and then, you know, me talking about brains. All right, so today I'm going to talk about, well, the next topic is that the slides says cells and genes. Basically, I'm going to talk about different kinds of cells, so neurons and glial cells today, and we'll talk about some sort of behavior genetics kind of stuff on Wednesday. I can also tell you that if you have got to be in my Evo site class, slides from the genetics kit will seem extremely familiar. Um, and that's not a coincidence, I'm waiting. So, I touched a little bit last time on neurons and glial cells, right? I kept saying, don't worry, you'll learn all about that, don't worry. So, let's get into it. Let's go into some detail. Um, Let me start by saying, I mean, neurons, neurons are basic information processing units of the that's what they do. They are the basic information processing units of the It may even be the case that single neurons can control behavior and store information. This would involve different genes being expressed depending upon the state of the input to the neuron. That's how it can store, an individual cell can store information. Controlling behavior actually isn't that complicated. Uh, we've, we've talked about, well, I mean, with mods and bats, that, right? Think about that one. That was that two neuron year was able to direct a mock away from the bats. You think about that kind of stuff. It's certainly possible with very simple reflexes for it to be a single neuron or a single connection. But in humans, we don't usually talk about single neurons controlling things. Usually we're talking about networks of neurons doing things. Almost always. I mean, with simple organisms, that's. When I say simple, it doesn't mean that they're dumb or anything. It just means they're simpler to understand, right? Like, so if you look at a nematode that has 302 neurons, a little flatworm, that's a simpler organism than a human. It's no less evolved or anything. That's just, that bugs me when people say that. But it is certainly a simple organ. You know, 302 neurons, and we know what all of them do and what every network is, and we also know the whole genome. It's more simple than a human. That's <laughs> the way it is. But usually it's a network thing. So what happens in this case with a network of neurons is that we have connections between various neurons and when they fire, you know, I can think of something very simple. If you have neurons that are sensitive to, I don't know, some line orientation, and you do have those, we all have them, that's, that's a thing. So if you had a, let's say you have, let's go have a network here, we'll choose a color, you got a network, there's one neuron, there's another one, there's another one. This is obviously just stylized. But you had one that recognizes line orientation like that, and another one that has line orientations like that, and another one that has a line orientation like that. If those all fire at the same time, and they all synapse onto another neuron, What do you think that, what do you think the object is? This thing is our, our very extremely simple neural network here is, 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 is recognizing. What do you think it is? It's like a triangle. It's a triangle. That's what I'm going for. So yes, it's a triangle. <laughs> so yes, 
line, line, line. Yeah, it's a triangle re recognizing network. So that's what that would be. It's an incredibly simple one, and obviously there would be other things in there, and we'll build on this example throughout the course, actually. It's by, eventually it's going to be, we're gonna design a neural network to recognize red triangles. But, which is probably more complicated than you'd imagined, uh, but there's a whole bunch of other steps we have that I haven't talked about yet, but this would be part of it, the three lines that make up a triangle. We're gonna need other stuff. Of course. Not there. You say, hey, that's too simple. Yes, it is. It's really too simple. That, that's because we're, that's where we're here now. Okay. I think we all have a favorite neuron diagram. This would be mine. I don't think we all have a favorite neuron diagram. I'm kidding. Some of these are jokes. Okay. This is a pretty decent one. It probably looks like something you would have seen in an intro textbook. I think that's because I stole it from an intro textbook. Um, this direction of the nervous impulse. Uh, kind of. Mostly. In intro, that's what you're told, and that's fine. Is that quick man? Pet-like reflexes, you see that? 57 years old. Pretty impressive, I'd say. Anyway. People listening to this have no idea what just happened. So let's make something up. Um, anyway, yes. Travel like that. And so we have dendrites, cell body, nucleus, axon. Myelin sheath, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But this is what you're used to, right? And that's, it's, it's, it's generally fine. This isn't bad. It's just really simple. Fine. And for getting across the basics to you when you were taking intro psych, this is fine. It's about to get more complicated, but I'm sure you knew that, right? Obviously. But I do like this diagram. It's pretty reasonable. One of the things I should tell you is that a neuron works the same way in you as it does in you, as it does in you, as it does in a rat, as it does in a nematode that has three to neurons. Neuro Neurons work the same. They have different DNA. You know, we all have different DNA and maybe different numbers of chromosomes. We're talking about different species. But the mechanics of the thing, the sort of biomechanics and the biophysics of it, they work the same. They all work exactly the same. It's great. It's kind of cool. Don't Google nematodes. They're just little tiny. Yeah, they're a little, they're a little tiny flat ones. They're about a millimeter long. And they're used a lot in neuroscience because, because we know what all the neurons do. We know every network and we know the genome. Uh, and also you don't have to do anything worry about ethics because they're they to neurons. When you're finished with them, you can just flush them out the Because frankly, they are everywhere. Like there's there's nematodes outside, it's not a big deal. Little tiny flat ones. When I was an intro back at Western, geez, in 84, whatever that was, yeah, would have been 84. We even used them in a little lab experiment. We did just sort of like a, we tried to condition them. And we were shocking them. And it's like, yeah, but it's a little worm. I'm not really that concerned. When people started walking around with a sign saying, save the nematodes, it's time to, maybe things are going a little too far. <laughs> yeah, nematodes are weird little animals. But they're great because they, we know everything about them. And because neurons work the same in you as they do in a nematode, we can, it's a really could be a great model. Okay, so here's some facts about neurons. You're born of almost all your neurons. Now, there is development that happens between zero and two. There is neurogenesis there. But most of the neurons in your brain, you were born with. Okay? Neurons change with experience. Now, how do they change? Well, there's a lot of ways they can change when we talk eventually about chemical stuff and synapses. We'll talk a lot about that. But once a neuron is fired once, the next time it fires, it fires a little 
uh, more efficiently, more quickly. So once something's been used once, once some neurons been used once, it fires more efficiently the next time. Or sometimes you can get the exact opposite to happen. So when a neuron has been inhibited, it'll be more difficult to fire the next time. All right. If they don't make connections, they die. So neurons that don't synapse on other neurons, they, they die. And you, why do you think, functionally, why do you think that is? So at the level of the function of that, not at the causal thing. Any thoughts? Like, do they have utility if they're on their own? Mm, well, no, they don't. So they don't give any advantage. What's the disadvantage? Because you're right, they have no they have no utility on their own. No. Please. They're required for everything. Elaborate on that. Well, I think you're close to what I want you to say. <laughs> for basic complex or any type of brain function, you sure. would need a neuron. You'd, sure, but you have neurons that aren't connected to things. And they don't. Yes. So I could use. Think about the function, not the cause. Laziness. No, they're expensive. They're metabolically expensive. Brains are expensive. So if you're not using it, you may as well let it die. And in fact, causally, it turns out that when neurons synapse onto other neurons, a chemical is released, um, a growth factor called no-go, which is kind of great that it's called that. Uh, what no-go does is it stops the uh, the death of a neuron. Program cell death. Program cell death. Um, now, some neurons it takes longer. So there are neurons in my, well, all of your occipital lobes that respond that one, uh, to depth. I don't have 3D depth perception, binocular depth perception. So th those neurons, if they don't fire by the time you're about two, they'll synapse, they just die. So mine are dead. Or they've been repurposed, I don't know, to memorize hockey statistics. Um, so if they don't make a connection, they die. And it's, they're expensive things. So if they're not doing anything, just they don't help you in any way, let them die. We can grow new neurons in the central nervous system. You've almost certainly been told that you don't. Because you basically don't. But there is some growth, um, some neuro called neurogenesis, right? There, there is some neurogenesis in adult humans. We measure this in hundreds or thousands a day. We don't measure it like we do with a developing fetus, which is in hundreds of thousands a minute at that point peaks. And even a baby before about two is still, there's still some neurogenesis there, a lot more there is in an adult. Now in your peripheral nervous system, that's different. In your peripheral nervous system, it's different. So when you get a cut, you don't end up numb in that place where you have a cut for the rest of your life. Right? Unless it's a really nasty. Sometimes that can happen. But usually not. Right? Because the neurons regrow. talk about this being really important, the quote, genetic blueprint to be reopened. What do I mean by that? I mean, basically, this is epigenesis. This is the epigenetics. This is the idea that the environment turns certain genes on and turns other ones off. Neurons aren't a static thing, though none of your cells are static things, right? They aren't just sitting there doing nothing. They're, they're firing or not firing, but when they're not firing, they're ready to fire. They aren't off. They're like a drawn bow. They're not, they're not just like a light switch itself. So again, they take a lot of energy. Um, but when we can have, what happens is experience, this is simplifying, but it doesn't matter. You have some experience and something changes and then that causes different proteins to be present, which can affect the growth of a neuron, et cetera, et cetera. 
people who don't understand genetics got really excited about epigenetics about 10 years ago for some reason. And I think it's because people who don't understand genetics think that people who say there's a genetic basis for something think that means nothing ever changes. No, it doesn't mean it at all. Okay, so let's do a little cell anatomy and physiology. One of the things that axons and dendrites do is they, that's the axons, you know, the, the, the generally, that's out, and dendrites are in, as far as the direction of the impulse. Um, they increase the cell surface area greatly. Uh, it's not uncommon in a human or in a cortical neuron for one neuron to have 10,000 synapses. This should tell you that we're not going to be rewiring anyone's brain anytime soon. We're not going to be downloading anybody's consciousness anytime soon. That's just bullshit. That's Elon Musk level stupid, asinine bullshit. It's just stupid. It's just not going to happen. Maybe in a thousand years, but it's not happening in our lifetimes. You'd have to know how everything works. Oh, okay, that seems easy. You see a lot of these, quote, transhumanist people really into that. It's like, no, it's not happening. Sorry, it's not going to happen. Now, dendrites are even bigger because dendrites have dendritic spines. So dendrites actually have little, maybe I'll go back to that diagram. It's not a bad diagram. Let's just go back to it for a sec. Oops, now I went all the way there. So you see, now I go back to the diagram there. And I guess let's call these dendritic spines. Sure, that's fine. Okay. So just these little bits coming off that dendrite. Okay. And like I said, a human cortical neuron can have 10,000 synapses. And we got like 10 to the 14th neurons. And explain to me how you're going to find out how every single one is hooked up. You can't. Again, they might come. But that's, that's technology we eventually get in the 2060s from the Vulcans. Like, there's no way that we're going to have. That's the first contact. There's no way they Not like Star Trek fans. It's disturbing. Okay. There's only one axon, and there's many again. One axon, many dendrites. The axon starts with what's called the axon hillock. A hillock is a, it's like an old English word meaning hill, where the word hill comes from. What's the old English word or actually an old Germanic word, but it, it might be. But a hillock is just a hill. The idea is it kind of looks like that the cell, let me draw a bigger picture here, we need to use silos for this. So we got some, whenever I draw a neuron, it looks, it always ends up looking like a really drunk moose. Um, here's the, there's your axon helix right there. Here, see, looks like a drunk moose. So, just be happy if, Computer technology nowadays allows me to just show you real pictures and you don't have to worry about that anymore, or my handwriting. Now, there's a lot of branches off these axons, so in fact, this is great on so many levels, but let's come off here. So what we have in this case are things coming off the axon, these are called teleodendria. That means touching the dendrite. Okay. All right. Good stuff. At the very end is what's called a terminal button. Sometimes people call it a terminal button, which seems to, it seems to be the word button, but it doesn't matter. This connects with the next dendrite, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a gap between neuron axons and dendrites, and that gap is called a synapse. And as I said, basically, information travels down the dendrite through the cell body, out the axon to the next dendrite of the next neuron. But think about this. You've got connections from 
perhaps 10,000 other neurons connecting onto one neuron. And we talk about neurons, uh, sorry, synapses and neurotransmitters, uh, you'll find out that actually sometimes neurons just sit out back on themselves, which is wild. Okay. Okay. So let's look at some different kinds of cells. So we have some different kinds of neurons here. We've got a, the bipolar neuron, that's this guy here. They have a short dendrite and a short axon. These are uh, oftentimes in visual, they're, well, they're in your retina. You've got 100 million of them in each retina. That's what your cones and your rods are connected to, or these bipolar cells. A somatosensory neuron, so that's one that does touch, let's say. It's going to have a lot more connections than a regular bipolar cell. You can see that here. Because it's got, there's some dendritic, uh, sorry, so there's been dendritic splining here, and you can see that there's tele teleodendria coming off this axon in a few places, okay? Now, then there's interneurons. That's these three different ones here. We've got an association or stellate cell. You can really just see the cell body in the middle. That's all dendrites. There's a lot of stuff coming in, and it's called an association cell. These, these are in your cortex, and what they're, the idea here is they're associating a whole bunch of different things, what they call association cells. Does that make sense? The Pyramidal cells are called pyramidal cells because uh, I think they should be called Christmas tree cells. But anyway, they're kind of pyramid shaped, but it's kind of pyramid shaped. And the Purkinje cell on the right, <laughs> I find this one funny. I just find that a funny looking thing. Look at all the dendrites. Yeah, it's like it's like it decided it went to like the, the hairdresser and said, I want it like a square flat top like in the like in the eighties. You see a lot of Purkinje cells in the uh cerebellum. Now Purkinje, that's a name of the person you discovered. Can we discover something I think you should be able to read it for yourself? I think so. Most of that, usually what happens is someone else calls it, names it after the person who discovered it. And there's these motor neurons here. These are the ones, of course, that make you move. These synapse on the muscles. Right? So neurotransmitters are being released onto my leg muscles to allow me to walk around. Okay? enough discovery to, to look at them. Basically, electron microscopes tend to be developed. So when I say recent, I mean, you know, in the 20th century. The cool thing is Sherrington, uh, who is not in the 20th century, but in the 19th century, actually figured out there must be synapses. There must be gaps. Because the speed of nervous transmission in a dog, a dog neuron, well, we measure it. A lot of people were doing measuring stuff in the 1800s. Science was becoming a lot more exacting, and you were able to do this kind of thing. The speed of nervous transmission was about 100 meters a second, which I know is really slow, but because you have this idea in your head that it's you know 100 or 300,000 kilometers a second, like the speed of light, and it's not. It's 100 meters a second. I mean, that's fast, but it's not stupidly fast. What? What? A Formula One car goes that fast, going straight out, like full out on a, in a straight line. It's 40 kilometers an hour. Yeah, that's about right. I love Formula One racing. You know, those cars are sticking to the ground so much that if you could put them on a, on a, on a roof, 
and they started driving, they would literally stick to a ceiling. They're, they have so, there's so much downforce. Anyway, um, so 100 meters a second. It's fast, it's not super fast, but he knew the speed. So what he did is he, he had uh, these dogs and he would stimulate part of their spine and their leg would lift. And it's like, okay, this should be this fast, except it looks like it's only like 10 meters a second. That's really slow. And then you thought, oh, I know, because there are gaps between the cells that something's traveling across, and that's what's slowing everything down. That's actually really, that's really smart. <coughs> that's pretty impressive. Okay. Sure, I think it was quite a good. So these are, these are chemical messengers, um, or, or we call them neurotransmitters, that go across this gap. And a lot of times, neurons feed back on themselves. So in fact, you'll, you'll get, so what you might get is a situation where you've got a neuron here, but then it synapses back, so no, that's a horrible drawing. I'm just going to do it stylistically instead of the actual picture. So that neuron A here, and let's say it synapses onto neuron B, but it also can synapse back onto itself. Or we can make something more complicated where Instead of synapsing onto itself there, it synapses back over to neuron C, which synapses onto neuron A. So we can get these feedback loops. So if you know a little bit about electronics, that is not unfamiliar. That can happen, especially with circuits and things like that. Now, I'll say that thinking of the human brain or any brain as being like a computer or like an electronic device can be useful, but for the most part, it isn't like that at all. <laughs> this is, you know, it does computing things all the time, but it's incredibly more complicated than a phone or a computer or whatever. And it doesn't run on the same set of principles. But you can get feedback mechanisms for sure. So we have many different connections. Um, and you're going to get excitation and inhibition. So for a neuron to make the next neuron fire, it doesn't always fire if there's a, if there's, if there's a neurotransmitter released across the synapse. It doesn't necessarily mean that next neuron fires. What you actually need is you have to reach a sort of threshold of activation. And that has to happen roughly at the same time. It's called the temporal window. And roughly at the same part of the neuron. That's called the spatial window. And speaking of Elon Musk, if you've ever actually watched a space launch, you'll see with the mission control people, one of the things they do is they go through checklists. And it always reminds me of, 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 of um, temporal summation, which is what this is, in the temporal window. So, because they all have to say go, and they get, they, they, the, the flight director will call out the names of all the different departments, and they'll, like, there's like 20 or 30, they're sending people in space. And if someone says, uh, no, the, the launch stops. So they'll either say go or go flight, and pretty cool. I love to be some space stuff. So it's kind of like that. But it also has to happen roughly at the same place. So I, I can't think of a great analogy for that other than, hmm, no, I can't. So when the neuron decides to fire, that decision is based on, have I crossed the threshold of excitation? 
And if I cross that threshold, I fire, please. Similar to the start of a race and a starting pistol. Yeah, it's not, that's not that, that's not bad. That's not bad, except that's just one thing making the decision. And it's not usually just one neuron making the next neuron fire. Usually it's hundreds or thousands, right? But yeah, it's like that. It's, it's like, every, in, in, in some respects, that's pretty good because you've got people that are, when you're gonna run a race, you're, if you're especially like a sprint, you're down in your start, the starting blocks and you're ready to go. It's not, you're not just standing still. Like in the 100 meters in the Olympics, there's not much people just going on. Oh, now? So yeah, that's not bad. So if, if uh, hey look, here's a, here's a horrible looking neuron now. So all this stimulation has to happen, not only at the same time, but maybe let's say around the same part of, this, of these dendrites that I've drawn on the board. Questions so far, anything I can answer? Anything I can't answer? Those are even more fun. Prof like, used to always say that when I was an undergrad, he used to say, any questions I can't answer? And then I said, he said, yes. I said, why do we exist? And he said, to give me a job. I thought, well, that's a perfectly reasonable answer. Let's move on. So those are the different kinds of neurons. What about glial cells? Of course, there's different kinds of glial cells. That all have some, well, not, not all of them. Many of them have complicated names. Epidymal cell, so these are small ones, they make cerebral spinal fluid. Astrocyte, oh, it looks like a star. Astro. Yeah, that's why it's called that. Uh, they do nutrition, so they basically are some nutritive functions. It says they keep, they keep neurons alive. Glial cells are basically, glia is actually a Latin word, it means glue. They're basically the glue that holds the nervous system together. The microglial cell, these are small, right? They're fighting off infections. And then if something gets into your brain, which there's a lot of ways that things, a lot of protection, but sometimes infections can get in, they do that. This is the one I always have trouble saying. That's why I'm looking really closely so I can read it and I'll still screw it up. Oligodendroglial. You had to call him that, did you? Thank you. That was really easy. Thanks for making me look like an idiot. People who did things. Uh, they form myelin around axons. See, those are axons. And there's, it forms the myelin sheath around the axon. And then Schwann cells do the same thing, except they do it in the peripheral nervous system. These ones that I'm not even going to say, the oligofragia de bartobums, I believe that's correct. Uh, they, they do it in the central nervous system. The Schwann cells do it in the peripheral nervous system. So Schwann cells are uh, named after Schwann. I always like to think it's actually some guy named Sean and someone just mispronounced it. Like his little sister called him Schwann. So that's, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure that's a guy with the last name Schwann or a woman with a, somebody with the last name Schwann. But I have this thing in my head where it's some guy named Sean and his little sisters go, Schwan. So why not? Let's pretend. Pretend <laughs> that's what it is. So as I say here, glial cells keep your brain running on time. They're basically the glue of the nervous system. They do serve repair functions, for example. So when you, I think I, I was going to say, I believe I was literally going to say the next point. Yes, so let's say you get a cut. <laughs> you, may you, may, you may realize I've taught this course before. Um, so if you get a deep cut, not, you know, so like, oh, here, here's one. Both of my thumbs are flat. I don't know if you can tell that, but I do all the cooking in our house. And now and then you cut pieces of your thumb off when you did a round one. This one here uh, was in 1990, we were married already then, so probably 1992. I was slicing an onion, and the, the, the cleaver I was using wasn't sharp enough. 
you want really sharp knives when you're cooking because they don't slip. It was sharp enough that it slipped, but not, and it could cut off part of my thumb, but it wasn't sharp enough that it didn't slip. So part of my thumb ended up in a spaghetti sauce I was making. That's ah, the skin. But boy, did it bleed. Um, then there's this one. This was only a few years ago. Let's see. 2015. Do you, you know what a mandolin is? <laughs> Those things? Oh. Yeah, and you know, Mr. Tough Guy here is like, I don't need the guard. <laughs> so I'm slicing potatoes really thin. Go, 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 go. And then went, and I thought, uh oh. And it was such a clean cut that I didn't even feel any pain, but I, I could feel blood. My hand up near like this, because I thought, that's a lot of blood. I'm looking. Bleeding everywhere. And my wife was on the phone. And I said, uh, Isabel, can you, um, can you for a sec? She said, I'm on the phone. I said, this is really important. Can you do it for a second? So she gets off the phone. Of course, she doesn't know, and I don't want to scream, because I don't want to freak anybody out. But I am, like, it looks like a horror movie. I'm covered in blood. And I'm okay. And I try not to look at it, because it's making me queasy. Which was the worst option? No warning comes around the corner. Well, I said, I, I said, I've heard when, when she got off the phone. She took about 20 seconds. I had one wood. You know, okay, I gotta go. Yeah, Dave dates me. Okay, I'll talk to you later. And I didn't want to say, hurry up, I'm bleeding to death. Because, I mean, that's not going to help anybody. But I said, when she came into the kitchen, I said, oh, I cut myself pretty badly. And then she, we've got a first aid kit. Stuff. But boy, that was a real cut. You don't even tell. Too much. Yes, I'm like, it's flat. Now, when that happened, I didn't get paralysis because how do you know if the pad of your thumb is paralyzed? But it was numb. It was numb for a very long time, actually, because I just sliced off a bunch of, not only a bunch of skin and, you know, thumb meat. Is that still um, But I also would have sliced off a whole bunch of neurons. So I didn't get, I guess, technically, probably is paralysis, but I don't know how you move the little part of your thumb. But it was certainly numb. I couldn't feel anything. Both those are I can now, uh, though it's not perfect in either of them. So the old axons die. They've been severed. They just die. So microglia and Schwann cells get into the pathway, and what they do is they, they go into where that ac the axon was, and they basically eat everything. They just clear it in. So the microglia, they clear everything out, and then the Schwann cells are there to myelinate an axon that's eventually going to replace the one that I've sliced off. What happens is now the neuron itself, so what I'm saying is you're, this is where this is a case where we've got a neuron that's had the axon sliced off. It's not, it's not that the axon's been, or the neuron sliced in two. If that happens, the thing just dies. So what happens now is the neuron sprouts where the axon was and grows. And the microglial cells have basically cleared one path where the old axon was. So it sprouts and it can only go in one direction. It's very cool. Very cool. But it can take quite a bit of time. And like I said, uh, they're still kind of, especially the left one. Not the one with the, with the uh, mandolin, but the one with the spaghetti one. <laughs> and it's still a little more. When, when your wife came in, did you go all like Monty Python? No, no, I did not. I didn't want to make any, I couldn't make any jokes. I was like, I can't look at this. Can you please do this? And the first thing she did is she put, well, we, we ran under water. And then I was actually like that, the sink, because I, the blood was like, yeah. like that, and just poured it. And then um, she put gauze on it and bandage, and then took a rubber glove and snipped off the thumb and put that over top to put some pressure on it. And then the next day I was teaching in here, in this class. And I hadn't, literally hadn't seen my daughter because she was out somewhere. And then she came back. She didn't even know this happened. And she was sitting right there. And 
she's before class. She says, Dad, what's going on with your thumb? I said, oh, oh you don't want to, you don't, you don't know? <laughs> then I sent him the picture I took. Because I don't know about you, but whenever I injure myself badly, you have to take a picture of it. Because you're never going to believe how bad it was in the future. I think that's the thing dads do. My dad did it. And I do it, I'm a father, so. Therefore, <laughs> it follows that. It's really too bad this doesn't happen in the central nervous system because then if you had a stroke, you could regrow your brain. That'd be awesome. Right? What happens in the central nervous system is that the glial cells actually seal off the, uh, the injury. They secrete no-go, which actually stops growth. Yeah, I mentioned no-go before. I was, that's not, I should have, it's not no-go, it's NGF that um, is released to the original neuron that keeps it alive. If you don't have NGF, neural growth factor, it does. It's mixing it up. So no-go is the one, it's the one that stops growth, obviously, instantly. There's actually been some success. Um, because well, what do we want? We want to be able to, if someone has a, a stroke or someone has something in their central nervous, let's say, let's say, the simplest thing we may be able to do, and this will happen in our lifetime, is somebody will be able to have their spinal cord severed, like break your back, break your neck, and that'll get fixed. I, I, that, that's a lot simpler than rewiring your brain. That will happen. And there's actually been some success with, with blocking no-go. Uh, there's been some success using um, uh, microtubules, carbon microtubules to direct neurons where to grow. Uh, this, that success is done in rats and monkeys. It's not tested, I don't think, on people yet. But it will come. that will come. Um, the other way to do it is to use stem cells, neural stem cells, because they will grow. There's been some success there, but Generally, unlike the peripheral nervous system, the central nervous system, it doesn't regrow. And think about this, if you've got 10,000 synapses, that's a lot of different places for things to grow. It, it's, so functionally, it's probably basically impossible or very close to impossible. Elements, not a Honda element. Ha ha ha. That's our old car. Obviously. Quite a bit younger, all of us there. I mean, I'm holding him. I wouldn't be holding him now. He's 21, he's built like a freaking ox. And he weighs a lot more than I do. And she's almost our PhD. And we don't have that car anymore. So Elements, various uh, elements are important in the nervous system for doing a whole bunch of different things. Generally, so we talk about hydrogen, carbon, well, uh, duh, or life forms. Oxygen is really important. Yeah, really, really for living things, oxygen is important. I didn't know. Um, nitrogen. Now, a lot of times you can get things like so nitric and nitrous oxide, for example, can act as signaling. Can do signaling in the nervous system. So a lot of times what these things are doing, not only is support functions and you know things like that, and you're made out of carbon, um, they're also doing, they can do some signaling things. Uh, calcium, we're gonna talk a lot about calcium channels. So calcium, uh, and what's my next one here? Oh, phosphorus. Potassium, we talk a lot about potassium. Silicon, or sulfur, sulfur. Uh, sodium. The key one here really, more than anything, is sodium. We're gonna talk a lot about potassium. Sodium and potassium and calcium are the, are the ones that we're gonna spend the most of our time on because with sodium and, so sodium, potassium, and calcium, what they do, because 
they end up as ions, so they either lose or lose an electron or take an electron, is they end up being able to detect the current across the membrane of the cell. Talk all about this. And chlorine is also really important. A neuron sits at around negative 70 millivolts. So the charge across the membrane is negative. And you want to make the charge across the membrane positive to make the, make the neuron fire. So what often happens, draw a picture there. So if that's real close-up of the surface of a dead neuron. Right here, we'll put a channel there that an, uh, an ion can travel through. So we can get sodium, that's a plus, can go in. So if, that's, if that channel gets opened, you probably can guess that channel's going to get opened by a neurotransmitter. Like that channel, that's called an ion channel, that's the door and the lock is a binding site for a neurotransmitter. So that rushes into that neuron and that changes the charge. It makes it a little less negative. On the other hand, sometimes there are chlorine channels. Let's change, let's make, I should have made this green. We're gonna make this one red because this one's gonna slow everything down. If chlorine gets in, that makes charge a little more negative. So once it's, it's positive enough, and when I say positive enough, I mean not negative enough. It's still at a negative level. It's about a negative 50, the neuron will fire. And it goes positive. It goes from like negative 50 to like positive 50. Very, very quickly. We say the charge, the polarization of the charge collapses. So if you're gonna make it fire, you're gonna do this. Let sodium in if you wanna make it not fire, you let chlorine in. So there are inhibitions, or sorry, inhibitory connections as much as there are excitatory connections. All right. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. So Let's look a little bit at the inside of the cell. The nucleus, so let's say this was the kind of diagram you'd get on a test, which it could be. Okay. Though that, I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't get into that kind of level of detail on a, say, a cell nucleus. But nucleus, central structure. So you know what you would do? You'd say nucleus has genes. Fine. That's all your marks. You don't have to tell me anything else. There's even too much detail for me on a text. Uh, that's another one that you probably, well, we can take a look at some of these. There's a dendritic spine that's cut off. Okay, so that's where a connection would happen. Uh, those are mitochondria. Mitochondria are the power plants of cells, right? You're gonna guess you're gonna get a lot, a few mitochondria in neurons because neurons are extremely expensive and they're using a lot of energy, right? Some other parts here matter a lot to us. Nuclear membrane. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Golgi body, probably a little bit. For the most part. The key thing here is that in the cell, inside the, the nucleus, the, there are the genes for, 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 for creating neurotransmitters. Okay. And they get expressed and you make a neurotransmitter. A lot of cells, Sorry, a lot of neurotransmitters we get directly from food, but some we, we build our own as well. Okay. Questions on that? Okay. Let's talk about 
just a little bit. About genes. Protein. So, this is a great quote. This is from Donald Hebb, uh, who is Canadian, uh, or was, I'm sorry. Uh, he, he, along with Brendan Milner at McGill University, basically invented cognitive neuroscience. There's a reason we're very good at this in Canada, and the reason is because the people who started it were here. So that just happens, just the way the world kind of works. It's sort of weird traditional almost. Yeah. I love this quote, trying to determine how much of a behavior is due to genetics and how much is due to the environment. It's like trying to determine how much of the area uh, of a field is caused by its length and how much is caused by its width. What that's saying is you can't have length without width. I've never played on a one-dimensional football field. That's just not a thing. So you have to have both. What this is really saying is people who argue about nature versus nurture don't understand biology. Now, the biologists in the room are like, well, yeah, that's the interaction principle. Of course, everything's a combination of the, the and the, the world's very complicated, and you get, you know, the environment makes certain genes get expressed, and those genes being expressed makes other genes get expressed and stops other genes, a whole bunch of other ones from not being, it, it's, it's very complicated. It's not like, Like the heritability of human height is 0.8. But it's not like everything up to my neck I got from my parents and then everything from here up is, is from the environment. The world just doesn't work like that. Okay. So people that get all, oh, that's biological. No, that's all social. Those people, that's my dumb guy voice. It's one of my dumb guy voices. I've got I'll, I'll test different ones out. I'm workshopping various different characters. Um, no, it, that's, it's pretty clear. That's the, that's, that's the environment. That's another one that I knew. I don't know who these people are. But they're a series of dumb diagnoses I do. So, just don't worry about, is it environmental? Is it genetic? doesn't matter. Because things can be 100% genetic. I to the point of it's a single gene, and be completely, their effect, and you, you, the effect that that thing has, is completely malleable, completely changed. Right? My favorite example here is PKU, which is a disease that, that's a genetic disorder, and you're born with it, and there's no treatment for it. But you know how you control it? You just don't eat certain foods. That's all it is. If you eat those foods, you end up um, having severe cognitive impairments. It used to be the number one cause of uh, developmental delays in people in the world. And now it isn't. Because when you have a baby, they take your baby away, do a blood test, and go, oh, hey, it's fine. Or, you can't speak any of you. Here's a list of foods never to feed your kid. Done. It's completely, the effects of it are completely mitigated. Mitigatable? That can't be a word. No, but mitigated is the past of mitigating. But if it can be mitigated. Able to be mitigated. Yeah, is it mitigable? Mitigable? No, no I don't not, think that's a word. That's not English. Can be mitigated, we're going to say that instead, uh, by just an environmental effect. The environmental effect is very simple. Don't eat this long, rather long list of food. And depending, it looks like more recent research. It used to be like for the rest of your life, don't eat these foods, but that looks like past puberty, you probably can eat some of the stuff. I wouldn't personally just because I'm like, yeah, what is it? Am I just gonna, my IQ drop and become like corn? I don't think I want to do that. But it's really, it's completely heritable. 100%. You can't catch PKU, but it's completely controllable. So just because something has a genetic basis doesn't mean you can't fix that effect with the environment. Um, it also, so genetic things aren't unchangeable. If they were unchangeable, it would be the case that people's hair wouldn't take die. 
your hair color is, a lot of that's determined by a series of genes, but you can change your hair color. Your eye color is determined by a couple sets of genes. And you know what? You can wear colored contact lenses. Like, it's not hard. So just because something has a genetic basis doesn't mean you can't change it. And just because something is something you know, primarily environmental doesn't mean we are effects of genes. It's just an, it's an important thing to keep in mind because a lot of times people see, they say something like, oh, so X is genetic. And a lot of us, like I'll use that as a shorthand because what I, what I really mean is when I say human height is 80% heritable, 0.8 heritability, what I mean is that if I take a look at the variance, this is a statistical concept, the variance in genomes, it overlaps with the variance in human height at about a point eight. So it's a Venn diagram of variance due to genome, of variance in genome and variance in height. They overlap. That's all that means. Right? So there's a lot of things out there that are like I said, PKU is a great example. It's 100% heritable and 100% fixable. It's just it's not a problem in much of the world anymore because a very simple blood test is done. One of the first things they do, it's very sad when you get your new baby and, and, and they take the kid away, or they take the kid and they, they do footprints with them because fingerprints aren't very useful because their hands are so small. But they do footprints. And you think that's cool, and then they take a little thing and they rhythm it in the heel. And then your kid cries, and you want to look at the nurse and go, What's your problem? What are you doing to my kid? I've only had a kid for like eight minutes. You're only hurting it. Right? And actually, what they're doing is they're doing you a favor. They're making sure that your kid doesn't have to be gay. And they also think it's pretty All right. That's not a bad place to stop. Uh, anybody have any questions on stuff from today? All right, let's pack it in for today, and we will continue talking about this stuff on Wednesday. So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. Uh, I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, 
these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu- the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because... Um, If they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, On that note, I will see you next time.